0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the Middle East Studies channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ibrahim Freyhat about his new book, Iran and Saudi Arabia, Taming a Chaotic Conflict. Ibrahim's book is much more than an exploration of the history of animosity between Saudi Arabia and Iran and its debilitating impact on an already volatile Middle East. It's a detailed roadmap for a resolution of what increasingly looks like an intractable conflict. Ibrahim Freyhat, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Perhaps we can start with you charting your intellectual journey that persuaded you to write your latest book.
1: Thank you very much, James, again. Uh... Well, I started actually this journey, um, very interesting, starting with my uh, uh, previous research uh, book, which uh, was uh, published in 2016 about unfinished revolutions, uh, Yemen, Libya, and Tunisia after the Arab Spring. Uh, And when I was doing my field research for that book in in the remote areas in Yemen and in Libya and in Tunisia and doing additional research for other research projects in Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, you know, all over the region I've been for the past 10 years uh, on the ground. Uh, I came to realize that I'm uh, studying or I was researching uh, more of proxy conflicts, right? in, In many aspects, while actually most of these conflicts are linked uh, to one major regional conflict that's taking uh, place between Tehran and Riyadh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. So uh, when I w- when I was done with my research, I thought, why am I researching, you know, the proxies? Why don't I go to the source, right, of these conflicts? As a conflict resolution specialist, uh, I try to focus on addressing the underlying causes and conditions. Uh, of these conflicts not just dealing with the effects and the uh, consequences of you know those uh, those conflicts so it came very clear to me that uh, uh, the stability of the region the middle east and north africa uh, to achieve this you will have to address the source or one major source uh, for many of these conflicts which is again in iran and saudi arabia there is no point of wasting your time trying to uh, sort out things in Yemen without addressing the regional component, the regional dimension of this conflict. Again, uh, many see it as a proxy conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, and you could see the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia reflecting itself in Lebanon and so forth. So. It became very clear to me that uh, I have to go to the source, and that's why I immediately, when I finished my previous research, started researching uh, uh, this, uh, you know, this conflict. One additional reason, actually, is that uh, uh, through the, you know, th- though it is an extremely important conflict uh, uh, and playing a, a major role in the uh, stability or destability of the region. Uh, there is a high level of confusion about this conflict. Uh, no one, you know, seems to understand, you know, what is going on and why are the parties are, what are the parties are fighting about? What what's driving this conflict? Uh, is it a sectarian conflict? Is it uh, about, uh, you know, uh, regional leadership? Uh, uh, what is it exactly about? And Uh, We're talking about a conflict that at least started since 1979 with the Iranian Revolution and what's called the export of the revolution from Iran to the region uh, and being understood by the uh, uh, Gulf uh, neighbors as regime change in these uh, conflicts. And we still understand, we're still arguing whether this is a sectarian conflict or what is it uh, exactly. Uh, So, because we still, you know, don't really exactly understand the sources, we don't understand the issues, there is no agreement on on these issues and sources, and or even, you know, the way it's being run, direct uh, confrontation between the parties or through proxies. So, that's why I decided to call it, you know, a chaotic conflict, while uh, Barack Obama talking about is an ancient conflict that's taking place. While others, you know, talking about you know, some more immediate causes uh, of this conflict, not exactly an ancient uh, primordial conflict, as Barack Obama wanted to describe it, is about Sunni Shia. So uh, it's a chaotic conflict uh, that uh, there is no clear understanding or there is no clear agreement about uh, you know the motives behind the conflict or the issues. You know, or even the means that they are fighting, and uh, because of this lack of understanding and the importance of this conflict for the stability of the region and the peaceful uh, and the peace of the region, I decided to give it uh, more attention and continue investing my research uh, in uh, not only in understanding, uh, which is you know the first part of my book talking about the understanding, but focusing. The majority of the work is about the means, how to deal with it, how to manage it, how to resolve it, right? which is, I think, what the, both policy and academic uh, debate needs at this time is that not just keep talking forever about uh, trying to understand what is going on, but, hey, we need you know, way more, to you know, someone to tell us how to respond to it, how to manage it, how to resolve it, and that's what I try to do with this research
0: indeed that's the significant con- uh, contribution of your of your book you you argue that the conflict is resolvable if properly managed and i wonder what that means against the backdrop of the key ingredient for solutions which is political will and that usually only emerges when the cost of not resolving a conflict is higher than the cost of re- of the conflict itself and we don't seem to have reached that point yet given that the current pandemic and global economic crisis has not changed Saudi Arabia or Iran's cost-benefit analysis.
1: You're absolutely right, James. Uh, One major reason why this conflict has not been been resolved is that there is no good management of this conflict. And here I'm making the argument, in order to resolve conflicts, you need to manage them well first that we need a better management uh, of the conflict. Probably one major reason why uh, uh, the United States and the former Soviet Union were able to uh, manage and resolve uh, ultimately their conflict and the Cold War not to uh, escalate to a a real war is actually that they had a good management, uh, conflict management uh, system in place. Uh, we had uh, senior level uh, of uh, visits uh, between exchange of visits between the two parties. We had uh, open communications between the parties. Hotline established. Uh, uh, dialogue was continuing. But James, we don't have any of that in Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, in nineteen in in, uh, in nine in, in two thousand sixteen. Sorry, is that we had. Uh, uh, you know the Saudi Saudi Arabia execution of Nimr and Nimr a Shia cleric in Saudi Arabia, and as a result, uh, uh, the Saudi uh, embassy in Iran was attacked and led to uh, you know cutting really diplomatic relations between the two parties. So there are no direct communications between them there is no uh, uh, exchange of senior level visits between the, the two the two parties and in order to be able to continue to communicate uh, so i'm trying to resolve to propose ways to manage this we need a hotline uh, you know that's you know to take a place is in order to prevent you know any misunderstanding about uh, the moves that could be taken between the two parties. So, uh, uh, in, in order, and also in terms of uh, 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 expert committees uh, on the technical level, you know, that they try to address the issues and to, to try to come up with some, uh, you know, s- solutions to their conflicts. Uh, there is no uh, such thing. And uh, in the absence of this conflict management system in place, and to try to respond to the escalations, as you said, we have the pandemic, and we have you know the two neighboring countries. There are many challenges happening uh, daily, and without a proper management system in place, uh, the, li- the, the response will be always limited, and will uh, and this could easily. Uh, escalate to direct confrontation between the two parties and let's keep in mind that wars do not happen only in a in a top down approach where leaders uh, take a, dec- a decision to launch a war against the other party no, that's not the only approach of how wars start uh, wars actually can be dictated you know from in in a bottom up approach like developments on the ground lead Two parties having to make uh, uh, decisions and to respond to the uh, other parties. If there is no clear communications, no clear understandings, you know, between uh, between the two parties, so uh, the management system is necessary and it's very important in order for us to try to uh, put the, this conflict on a track for resolution. But nevertheless, you mentioned, you raise a. A very interesting point, which is about uh, the cost. You know, is that if there is no cost for this conflict, then it will go down, you know, to the political will of the parties. Let's first of all uh, uh, remember that, and which which, which is uh, an important point of why the conflict is resolvable. Actually, we had just in the very recent history, during the times of Rafsanjani and Khatimi, we had a really good managed conflict. And they were able to, uh, uh, you know, to come up with some sort of agreements. In 1997, we had a security protocol established and agreed between the two, you know, between the two parties. We had later even Ahmadinejad visiting Saudi Arabia. We had King Abdullah as well, you know. So during the times of Khatimi and Rafsanjani, we had everything almost under control, and we started to see collaboration developing between the, the two parties and became less influential uh, in terms of the stability of the region and you know better managed conflict now the problem is in 2003 when the american invasion of iraq happened that led to the change of uh, uh, you know the balance of power uh, in the region was all totally uh, uh, shifted uh, towards in favor of Iran, uh, which, uh, you know, the imbalance of power and, uh, you know, the regional order, the change of the balance of, uh, of power in the regional order led to this. So uh, with the question of uh, the political will and the cost, I think now we are talking about uh, probably the worst times uh, uh, for for the two parties in probably the past 50 years, uh, where Saudi Arabia now uh, uh, fighting a number of wars in, uh, in, in Yemen, uh, lost the war in Syria, uh, also supporting Haftar in Libya, uh, the uh, blockade on Qatar. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the relationship with the, uh, you know, with the United States is not as stable and as strong and as good as used to be in the past, a very rocky relationship at the moment. Uh, of course, with the decrease of oil prices, that we're seeing the lowest prices probably in history uh, at the moment. And for a country like Saudi Arabia, depending mainly on uh, oil uh, you know, as the backbone of its economy, uh, also, we have the Hajj, the pilgrimage, as well. Season for the first time, probably in, uh, in probably a century, that we won't see uh, a Hajj, a pilgrimage, this year taking place, which should take place in a in three or four months because of the Corona pandemic. Uh, so the the economic sources are, you know, Saudi Arabia is seriously struggling, struggling in terms of the economy, and to to try to finance or to fund all these was as well but but the situation for iran is not is not much better actually actually that saudi uh, iran also is going through uh, also the harsh the the harshest sanctions ever in history that's imposed by the united states on iran at the moment so with seeing an, an extreme case of harsh sanctions on Iran at the moment, and also Iran fighting or funding a number of civil wars as well, and, uh, which is very ironic, actually, because it needs to look at their uh, economy and to, to deal with the sanctions. But instead, you, know, funding civil wars in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq uh, and in Lebanon. Uh, as well. So I think it's, those are very unprecedented uh, times for both countries for Iran and Saudi Arabia in terms of both the economy and the politics and the engagement and the involvement of Saudi Arabia and Iran in these civil wars. This takes us, James, is to uh, what we argue in, uh, in conflict resolutions is about you know the ripeness for a resolution and according to uh, Zartman talking about ripeness, is that uh, conflicts become ripe for resolutions when the two parties reach what's what he calls the a mutually hurting stalemate. And I think this moment, uh, the mutually hurting stalemate, stalemate for both Iran and Saudi Arabia has never been the case. Uh, in the past, in Iran, Iran was probably... Uh, uh, suffering more in terms of uh, the sanctions uh, while Saudi Arabia was uh, in a uh, relatively better situation position uh, compared to its relationship with uh, with the United States. But now it's both uh, the stress and the the mutually hurting stalemate is taking place for both. And according also to the theory, when the mutually hurting stalemate uh, is reached, then a perceived or uh, the two parties seeing a way out uh, could be uh, the right moment for a, resol- a resolution. And I think because, again, we're having, as we explained about the mutually hurting statement, uh, the uh, uh, ever for both parties, I think now the time is ripe for a resolution, which I hope that uh, leads to the political will that you uh, raised in your question And that the two leadership of both parties uh, understand that the time has come for a resolution and they can uh, jump on an opportunity to resolve it and to uh, deal with their conflict differently. It
0: it strikes me two things. One, there's a difference between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Iran is basically used to uh, operating in a very hostile environment. A hostile environment meaning the international uh, community, sanctions. This is not the first time that they're uh, laboring under sanctions. They've always felt that they were on the defensive and under attack. Whereas for the Saudis, this is the first time that they're really confronting a situation like that. The other, the other problem that I, that, I, that I think we have is, and you've identified sectarianism and security as two of the key issues in the conflict. But you're tackling those problems, in a sense, with perceptions, or if you wish, misperceptions of one another, that are woven into the fabric of the state and its ideology, and then are reinforced by the actions of third parties. Yes. Um,
1: sectarianism, uh, I think you touch on the uh, a really major and hot issue uh, you know, for this conflict. Uh, and I think if we understand the dynamics of sectarianism and security, I think we can be talking about you know, this, uh, the, the serious understanding of this conflict that we need, uh, which is also what I call as one of the reasons why this conflict is not, uh, has not been uh, resolvable, is that because we have a high level of confusion about uh, what is really driving this conflict. So now let's talk about this. Um, Sectarianism—that you know, many analysts talk about it as that cause, or as Barack Obama uh, talking about it as an ancient conflict driven by sectarianism. Uh, yeah. Now, sectarianism—I am making the argument in this book that it's not the cause of this conflict; it's not the original cause of this conflict. Uh, so they are not fighting about. Uh, sectarianism is about Sunni Shia. In fact, James, I really don't think that the two leaderships really care about sectarianism, right, that um, Saudi Arabia cares about Sunni Shia or, or Iran cares about Shia, advancing Shia cause or uh, the way that people would, uh, you know, look at it sometimes. I don't think they care about sectarianism. What they care about and the, and, you know, the issue of dealing with sectarianism, sectarianism is used by both parties right, as a tool to advance their political agendas. Right? So it's a convenient tool, it's helping both parties to, talk, you know, to use sectarianism in order to uh, advance their political agendas and achieve gains. Saudi Arabia in this regard would show it as you know Iran is advancing Shiism in the region so it can mobilize the Sunni world around it right and also gain or establish you know regime legitimacy within also Saudi Arabia itself because you know I'm the one who's standing uh, up against uh, Iran and preventing uh, the spread of Shiaism in the region, and, so, and, Shia, and Iran is doing uh, doing it in its own way. That it's investing in the Shia communities in the in the region. It's not a coincidence that it's helping uh, the uh, Shia uh, Houthis in the in Yemen, or the Shia militias in Iraq uh, or in Lebanon or in Syria. So. So she has, uh, Iran is finding it also an opportunity to invest in these uh, areas. So here's the thing. While, she, while sectarianism in this regard is not the cause and is being used as a tool to advance their political agendas, however, this sectarianism has become a cause of further escalation right, of the conflict. Right, so it's not an original cause, but it's a cause of further escalation, right, and uh, a spread of the conflict in the region, which now has become or it's it, it became linked also even on the sectarianism is on the grassroots levels where we're reaching you know levels of animosity on the you know among the people, right. So in this case, while it's used as an as a tool. Uh, and uh, you know, by the two parties uh, has pushed the conflict to a much higher levels and much dangerous levels than without the use of sectarianism. I think that cause of this conflict is about security. You know, security is not about the original cause of this conflict. It's about security of both parties. And both parties are uh, facing serious security situations that has led to what's called the clash of security needs between the two parties, and led to what I call in the in the book as the uh, perceived encirclement uh, of both parties and caught up in this security dilemma. How is this working? Iran responds, you know, as you uh, also said, is seen uh, as under see, sees itself as under attack from. Part- particularly and primarily from the United States and Israel, and that uh, the military bases of uh, the United States surrounding Iran uh, in the Gulf, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Uh, so Iran sees itself as being encircled by the U.S. military bases around it from all uh, uh, from uh, all neighboring countries. And Iran, because of this perceived encirclement, also responds by trying to expand its influence in the region in order to break this encirclement, and invests in building armed militias in Yemen, uh, in Syria, Iraq, uh, and Lebanon in particular. And what is Iran is causing or is leading in this case is that is uh, in. in this kind of uh, expansion of armed militias is causing encirclement around Saudi Arabia as well, right? So uh, while the Iran is being encircled by the uh, U.S. military bases, Saudi Arabia is also uh, sees itself being encircled by Iranian armed militias uh, from almost all sides. So this uh, mutual encirclement that's what is driving both parties to set up their conflict strategies in terms of uh, escalation and uh, hostility against the other party is trying uh, to respond in, in a way that's, that's been affected by, uh, by the encirclement. Uh, they're responding in a nervous uh, way. Uh, and expansion in the in the region. How do you break this dilemma? How you in this encirclement of both parties and to try to bring them to a solution? Uh, that's probably uh, one of the major causes that's driving uh, this conflict. So for Saudi Arabia to feel that the Iranian threat is, is real, they see it. They see it as real, etc., could be seen in the armed militias in Iraq and uh, in Yemen and uh, uh, armed militias uh, elsewhere. So security, um, and again, uh, you know, the parties would lead to uh, as well uh, in terms of using sectarianism and all other methods as, as well. Now, we can't also deny that there is uh, other major reasons uh, contributing, uh, which is when we talk about leadership. With both parties are assuming leaderships of uh, uh, of the Muslim world. Saudi Arabia sees itself as the leader of the Muslim world and also of the Sunni world, Muslim Sunni world. And Iran also appointed itself as the leader of the uh, Shia Muslim world as well. Right. So uh, with the Iranian intervention with the Shia community in the in the region. Uh, This also, as I said, is creating more tension in the region and creating more tension actually between, you know, in these societies, uh, between Sunni Shia, for example, in Yemen. I used to go to Yemen before uh, even the Arab Spring, before 2010. uh, And the issue of sectarianism and Shia Sunni was never existed. You could never see it. But go to Yemen today and see how uh, many things, or the conflict, and we are in you know in terms of uh, sectarian prisons uh, uh, in the region, in, in Yemen.
0: I I would agree with you with uh, two caveats, if I may. What one is uh, the perceptions of Shias themselves in Gulf states, whether the Shiite minority in Saudi Arabia, or the fact that you have a Sunni minority ruling a Shiite majority. With little prospects for the Shiite majority in Bahrain, and so, uh, until the overthrow of Saddam Hussein in two thousand three, you had a, this, a similar situation of a primarily uh, Sunni minority governing a Shiite majority with no prospect of change, uh, and so that, in a sense, gives it a, uh, a, a, a gives it a, a flavour of sectarianism to some degree. The other the other caveat that I put is you know. And I agree with you. For the regimes, it's not about uh, sectarianism, but for Iran, if you look at the proxies, basically the proxies were uh, almost a similar uh, defense strategy to that of Israel. You fight your bo- you fight your uh, your wars far from your own borders, and that's what they what they served. And it was also the fact that given Iran's uh, Economic situation; its uh, limited access to uh, to buying weapons. That asymmetric warfare was almost its only option.
1: Yes, uh, I think you know, James. Is the issue of sectarianism? I agree with you. And this issue of a minority ruling over a majority, uh, uh, whether it's in Syria and Bahrain uh, and other places. I think there is a very unhealthy relationship. Uh, with majority-minority relationships in the, in the region. It's very unfortunate. And again, and I, and I don't think this is limited, James, to the Sunni Shia cause, but it's also, if you look at other uh, minority issues as well, look at uh, uh, also uh, historically Iraq uh, and the Kurdish community as well, or other minorities, uh, whether in Egypt, in Jordan, in uh, Lebanon, in Syria, I mean, the issue of minority has been uh, a major issue in the region and has been a major cause of the instability uh, of the of the region. Uh, uh, and, and so, Iraq is in uh, Iran. Sorry, is investing in an area in in a in a uh, in a very uh, unstable area already in terms of uh, sectarianism. Uh, and supporting you know with what some scholars called it the Shia revival uh, in the region, uh, and that they're trying to reclaim their rights. And, and I think there's, there is level of, uh, of seriousness about this, and uh, there, there is a legitimate cause uh, of that how the minorities are not treated as you know, citizens in, in a number of countries. Uh, But also when they became in power, uh, like in Syria, also uh, the Alawites minority uh, in Syria as well, we saw even a worse situation than probably in Bahrain or in other uh, places where the other uh, side uh, rules. Uh, So I think we need to fix this relationship between, uh, and, you know, for the, uh, which is the starting point, and as I address it in the book, a starting point actually for, for Saudi Arabia, is to really build a strong strategy that can uh, respond to Iran. And here I'm making the argument while investing in arms sales and hard power, hard power is always an important factor in any conflict, but don't ever think that hard power is going to bring you peace and stability. But Israel, you brought up the example, is that is a nuclear state, but always calling, you know, for, uh, you know, uh, is, is all making the argument that uh, does not feel secure in its borders and does not feel secure from the Palestinians, you know, that who have uh, no army, no state, nothing. So peace can be achieved only, you know, through different means. Hard power, again, can be an important factor, but you have to reach peace through different ways. And... To reach peace and stability and end the security dilemma for Saudi Arabia, I think it's one approach, one starting point, is through rebuilding its relationship with the Shia community in uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia. Right, the Shia community, uh, and as again I address in the uh, in the book, uh, when by uh, you know they're perceived as uh, uh, infidels by some extreme uh, religious leaders in Saudi Arabia or that as one of them put it for me uh, that every friday we hear in the mosques about you know being called as infidels and uh, being treated as uh, the filth column or as loyals to iran you know so we have an issue here uh, is that needs to be addressed and uh, a reconciliation Within Saudi Arabia itself, with the minorities, with the Shia minorities, uh, with the Shia minorities there, it actually l- will lead to strengthening the relationship and will lead to a stronger and more stable uh, uh, regime and more stable state from within. And that's actually what will enable Saudi Arabia to respond and be stronger in its conflict with Iran, right? Not feeling that the eastern part of Saudi Arabia as being the Shia community, as being loyal to uh, external uh, powers, to Iran. Uh, So through this, uh, uh, the forging, and it's not only about the relationship with the uh, Shia minority and and others, but also in the whole relationship, James, between state and society in uh, in, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, as, uh, you know, as a new social contract, you know between the state and society is what will enable Saudi Arabia you know to resist and to be stronger in its conflict with, with Iran. So through building your uh, internal fronts and building uh, a, a solid relationship between uh, the state and society, uh, uh, and about building a state for its own citizens, so building and promoting citizenship as you know, the cause of or as the major core issue of the relationship between state and society is what will make Saudi Arabia stronger. It's not the arms sales, right, that it's of investing $460 billion uh, in, uh, through arms sales from, uh, from Trump administration, but then, when the Aram, when the attack on Aramco uh, the, uh, uh, months ago, uh, that this arms sales, you know, could not stop an attack on on Aramco uh, in Saudi Arabia. So, what is the point of the hard uh, power investment in, in order to resolve and uh, win this conflict with with Iran? So, it's the same thing with uh, you know with Iran. I think it's also. Uh, we have a troubled relationship in iran from within the relationship with with its uh, arab minority uh, as well in the western part of, uh, of iran uh, also with baluchistan and you know several other cases we're seeing you know more executions uh, iran is in is the second uh, country in the world in terms of executions of its own citizens after china so uh, you need to address this relationship differently as well. And Iran, uh, by investing with the relationship with the Shia in the Arab region, I think uh, here they're reproducing their security dilemma as well. Saudi, Iran uh, explained the intervention of its, uh, its intervention in Syria and in others, and also as you uh, raised in your, your good question, James, is that fighting its wars outside or far away from its borders. Iran explained this because uh, fighting terrorism, fighting ISIS, fighting Al-Qaeda. But here's the thing, you know, when you're investing in supporting the Shia or advancing Shia, uh, a sectarian Shia government in Iraq, supporting, that was one major reason why we saw, for example, the former Ba'athists, uh, and the Iraqi army, allying with ISIS, the, the dissolved Iraqi army, I mean, uh, during the times of Saddam, is allying itself with ISIS in order to head back. So Iran, actually, while it claims as addressing its security dilemma as, as fighting ISIS and Sunni extremism outside its borders, actually what it did by investing by advancing a sectarian agenda, or advancing using sectarianism to advance its political agenda, actually it caused a rise of Sunni extremism against it in the in the region. So it's reproducing its security dilemma, right? With the by by going or by using the wrong approach of uh, investing and. Uh, investing in sectarianism and, deal and uh, using uh, sectarianism as a tool uh, for its uh, political agenda. So, uh, with that, I think uh, both countries are running a counterproductive uh, uh, strategy, and that's why I call what I put as one major reason uh, uh, or one major approach to resolve uh, the conflict and for both parties actually to advance their conflict strategies and be more productive towards the resolution, is that the first step would be is to reform their conflict strategies. And reform can, be, uh, can take place on many levels, investing in, uh, in, uh, not only in changing their relationship and the way that they deal with sectarianism, but dealing with other aspects like their soft power, for example. Instead of using and investing all in hard power, Saudi Arabia is buying uh, uh, arm sales, uh, you know, from uh, the U.S. and investing in arm sales and uh, arm race in the region. And Iran also using its economy in funding civil wars in the region. They can look at their soft power and they, what they can do in terms of their soft power. I think with their soft power, they can do much. Uh, much better things for themselves than just using the hard power uh, in order to uh, advance this conflict. And when I talk about soft power, um, I talk about uh, again uh, the with uh, with Saudi Arabia uh, is try is the, the Saudi Arabia needs to present itself to the world in a different way that it's perceived today. That it's not only about I mean, uh, the relationship with the, you know, former Mujahideen in Afghanistan and the funding of madrasas in uh, Pakistan or any other places. That Saudi Arabia became branded globally as, you know, funding or as uh, a cause of terrorism uh, through the funding and support of religious schools and uh, 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 ruling in a in a happy way and. Uh, and on that level, so this branding of Saudi Arabia must change. Saudi Arabia should uh, proceed in terms of reproducing itself, uh, uh, re- uh, sorry, re- reproducing its uh, branding, and to try to present itself in a different way than you know what is the way it is currently being perceived. And also, when we talk about soft power for Iran as well, Saudi Ar- Iran. Is trying to expand in the Arab world, right? But never presented an appealing model, you know, for the region. If you pick any person today in any of the Arab countries and ask them, you know, where would they like to go? You know, to go to Tehran or to Iran or go, for example, to to Dubai, right? No one would tell you I would like to go to Tehran. Is the Iranian model is not appealing to the people of the region. Uh, so you can't rule only by just keep investing in armed militias, right? And thinking that you can, uh, as some of their politicians claim, the control of four Arab capitals and build an, an empire in the region. So Iran's strategy, you know, so far has been all about creating instability, but instability in the countries where its armed militias are operating, in Yemen, Iraq. Syria and Lebanon, but never, n- there is no one example where Iran actually presenting a model that it's building a state, it's building a, uh, a new uh, a, a reconstruction after conflicts taking place. Uh, so the Iranian, in terms of soft, soft power, Iranian image uh, is probably the worst ever in the region as a result of course of its supporting of the Assad regime in Syria and a sectarian maliki government in uh, in Iraq as well so iran's image in the region has probably been the worst uh, ever and in order to change this and to run into more uh, a productive uh, rather than counterproductive strategies you need to you know produce uh, you need to uh, to reproduce the image you know and present your image Indifferently, and your branding you know differently than from being seen as armed you know funding armed and civil wars uh, in the region one important thing of how Iran that I mentioned in the book of how Iran actually uh, damaged its image not only in the region but also in the world through its uh, current strategy Iran historically was seen as a victim of chemical weapons uh, when, uh, during the war with Iraq and Saddam use of chemical weapons against, uh, uh, against Iran during the 80s. But listen to this, I mean, that we have, we are seeing uh, uh, an Assad regime uh, in Syria that's allegedly used uh, chemical weapons against its own citizens right, in Ghouta and in different other places. And whose primary ally and whose primary supporter in this is that Iran, so Iran's shifting place from being the victim of chemical weapons, as the case of uh, during the times of uh, the war with Iraq uh, with Saddam Iraq in the eighties, to being the victimizer or the ally, uh, the primary ally of the victim, of the uh, uh, perpetrator in uh, in in Syria, and the Assad regime's alleged use of uh, chemical weapons. So this shift of its position, right, from being uh, the uh, the victim to being the perpetrator in terms of chemical weapons, I think this has, its image has suffered a lot. And it's, it's unfortunate that Iran, who suffered, uh, you know, from the use of chemical weapons, is to find itself in the same boat with uh, dictatorships in in Syria, and uh, the the way this affects its branding and its image in the region. So again, I think the presentation of an appealing model to the region, and I think and through the soft soft power is one way that Iran could help help itself and could help the region as well and engage more into uh, productive and constructive strategy.
0: It's, it strikes me that you're really talking about paradigm shifts, even to get to a conflict management system. And I agree with you. And the problem with that is, if you take the soft power example, the, the Saudis have changed their soft power strategy since the rise of uh, King Salman and Mohammed bin Salman. But they've really done it only in terms of uh, the facade and some lay, low-hanging fruit. They haven't really done it in any degree of substance, and they've been their worst enemies over the last four or five years uh, in terms of uh, uh, projecting themselves in a different image. And by the same token, the Iranians, I mean, in the first year of the revolution, 1979 up until the Iran-Iraq war, uh, did have an appeal, and the war fundamentally derailed the revolution, if if you wish. One of those uh, paradigm shifts which you touched on in your book was that you suggested that Iran could contribute to a resolution by no longer appointing itself the leader of the Shiite world. It strikes me there that, one, the Iranians would demand uh, reciprocity from Saudi Arabia, which would have uh, uh, far-reaching consequences, including, for example, the Iranian demand for uh, uh, an international or multilateral management of the holy cities, but also if you draw, drew a comparison to Israel, what you see is that it's up to Jews to decide whether or not Israel is their leader or se- central to their interpretation of Judaism, and increasingly you see Israel's place in Judaism contested among Jews. And so the same process could take place if you had that level playing field, both among Sunnis and Shias, with regard to Saudi Arabia and Iran.
1: Thank you, James. This is a really great question. And uh, uh, in terms of paradigm shift, and yes, I am calling for a paradigm shift uh, in both parties. And I agree with you totally that uh, both parties, Iran and Saudi Arabia, touched on some paradigm shift uh, uh, and in terms of building uh, soft power uh, at different times. Let me begin with Iran. with Iran, uh, during the times of Khomeini, when the early days of the Islamic Revolution in, uh, uh, in Iran, back in 1979, eight, the early 80s, uh, Iran and the Khomeini regime was calling for supporting the oppressed and uh, you know, a different uh, message was sending to the region and uh, in, in many different ways uh, and, you know, advancing justice and all of that. So I remember in the, during the 80s, you could see, you could walk into many Arab capitals and you see the pictures of Khomeini in different places. I could also, I still remember that uh, in Palestine, for example, used to hear even songs, right, for Khomeini, right, or in Jordan, or in other places, right. If you go now in the Arab world and try to see where you see Khamenei's pictures, probably you see them in Sarda, in the north of Yemen, and you see them in the Dahiya in uh, in Beirut, right, in the stronghold of Hezbollah uh, there. But other than that, right, not sure where you will see an Iranian. Uh, soft power or an Iranian model appealing, right for the youth of the region on for the land. so this changed. Uh, unfortunately, it shifted, but shifted to the uh, to the opposite side where uh, the Iranian model is no longer appealing and is no longer seen as uh, a, a friendly country where you know people can live with peace and harmony in the region. Uh, but other than that. Uh, we haven't seen uh, any changes. We see uh, the the opinion pieces that Jawad Zarif writes in the New York Times, but right? by the way, that I think they uh, lead to uh, uh, really uh, bad results rather than uh, really changing. They're making things worse, you know, right? because when people read them here, I mean, and they look at their action, right? so it's, it's really counterproductive also for, Uh, you know, for Iran, uh, is to be using its uh, primary soft power strategies, writing uh, Jawad Zarif's writing opinion pieces in the New York Times and thinking that people would welcome that. People look at your action and then when they see a discrepancy between what you say and what you do, this actually further undermines your image and leads to an issue of credibility uh, there. Now, in terms of... uh, Saudi Arabia, and I think you asked the right question about, hey, we are seeing uh, uh, Saudi Arabia leadership uh, is uh, or has started uh, this paradigm shift in terms of its soft power. Uh, We saw uh, for the first time uh, allowing women to drive, so changing this uh, important thing. And also uh, fighting corruption and all that. And I think this can be or could have been uh, really the uh, a really good start for Saudi Arabia of again uh, rebuilding its image uh, globally and to try to show some serious steps in terms of changing its relationship, uh, you know, uh, on the domestic level and on the yeah, and internally. Unfortunately, these changes tend to be uh, handled in the most uh, uh, counterproductive approach, actually, and lack serious credibility about uh, what reforms are Saudi Arabia really doing, right? uh, And in terms of fighting corruption, uh, and we heard about, you know, the Red Scalton, uh, you know prison that it's going to a prison for uh, the wealthy Saudis and uh, uh, you know fighting corruption, but we saw this not done in the in a in a meeting the minimum standard of a transparency, right? Allowing them for uh, uh, you know to have access to lawyers and to try to uh, you know fight back on their terms of uh, you know charges of corruption. Uh, So it's done, it was done in the most secretive way. We don't know how it was done. We don't know what was the standard uh, that was used in uh, those finding corruptions. I don't know on what ground, actually, they were arrested and put in prison and asked to surrender parts of their wealth and be released. And some of them actually there came back, uh, like the former Minister of Foreign Affairs, who was one of the, Ritz-Carlton's people, uh, that after being released and supposedly for, you know, charges of corruption and then being sent back as being the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia. So that's not done in the most transparent uh, approach taking place uh, on that level. And of course, you know, we have the elephant in the room that undermined, uh, you know, the reform uh, agenda or the reform image that Saudi Arabia, which is, uh, you know the assassination of uh, Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi and the way it's done and the way it's handled, and I don't think Saudi Arabia uh, has uh, till now, or probably in the uh, foreseeable future, would be able to recover from this uh, uh, this scandal about the way you know murdering the uh, you know the Saudi journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi. It's became the biggest nightmare uh for saudi arabia's uh, image and saudi arabia's you know credibility in saudi arabia's leadership and underm- and raise serious questions about what kind of reform are you really doing right on that level now let not also you know let's not also forget some other examples that the new york times and wall street journals also mentioned about uh, the crown prince purchase of high expensive uh, Uh, you know, uh, artifacts and, uh, uh, you know, some other, uh, you know, houses in Saudi, in France and other places. So which raises a serious, you know, contradiction between uh, fighting corruption and what you're really doing uh, in terms of, you know, buying fancy houses and and other places. So, yeah, according to these uh, articles by the Wall Street Journal and uh, New York Times. So, the whole issue of reform um, with those kind of examples in Saudi Arabia also has been questioned and uh, it lacked credibility uh, and the people being able to uh, trust that what's happening is, is genuine, what's happening is serious. I think Saudi Arabia still has an opportunity to genuinely engage uh, with political reform in Saudi Arabia fight corruption, uh, release those, uh, you know, people in prisons uh, that also the charges are not clear uh, while they're still in prisons uh, without transparent uh, 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 way of dealing with the prisoners and all of that. So I think uh, this became, instead of a paradigm shift, uh, to rebuilding its image and rebuilding its... uh, soft power, it became, to, it became a liability, it became uh, counterproductive. And we need probably another paradigm shift is where you can convince the world and convince, most importantly, your own citizens that you're running a free, fair uh, way of uh, engaging with the society, building a new social contract uh, between society and state and trying to advance this in a more transparent and credible way.
0: In a lot of ways, I think one could describe the history of the Saudi-Iranian conflict as a history of missed opportunities. Unfortunately, I, I'm, we're running up against the clock, but I do want to squeeze in one last question before we go on to the final part of the interview. And that is, from a Saudi perspective, it strikes me that Iran is an existential threat, irrespective of who rules Iran, simply by what it is. And what I mean by that is several things. One, it's an alternative form of, government, of Islamic governance, and Saudi Arabia doesn't look kindly on alternatives to its governance. On top of that, Saudi Arabia, in the larger uh, uh, stretch of things, is hardly a competitor in a world in which Iran would be unshackled from sanctions, given Iran's geography, given the size of its domestic market, given its history and of scientific achievement that goes back half a century. And in fact, in that world, it wouldn't be Saudi Arabia, but it would be Turkey and perhaps Egypt that would be Iran's main, main rivals when it comes to regional hegemony.
1: That's correct. Um, and I agree with you, uh, James. And I think, uh, I mean, during the, uh, our uh, research and doing this, uh, this book, which where I met many uh, Saudis and uh, you know people from the Gulf and Iran, and also and we challenged the Iranians on this level of the relationship with uh, with their neighbor with Saudi Arabia, and they used to always tell us uh, that we don't see Saudi Arabia as our rival in the region, and actually according to them is that stability of Saudi Arabia is in our own interest. And in order to have a stable uh, country on our borders that we don't have to deal with ISIS and instability and Sunni extremism. And they made the argument many times. And so it's in our, uh, in our interest is to keep Saudi Arabia a stable country. And as you said, there's, you know, the rivals is somewhere else. According to them, it's primarily uh, Israel and the United States. Uh, in the region, uh, uh, that what uh, you know the way they see it. Uh, uh, yes, there is a, a, a concern for Saudi Arabia here, but Iran is not the only country. Right? There is you have also Turkey as well, uh, uh, who also presents history and uh, uh, scientific achievement also in, uh, uh, in, in Turkey as well. I don't think Saudi Arabia should need to worry about this if they're able to really build a strong and stable state uh, that, again, build on uh, a new social contract within Saudi Arabia. Uh, Build your own uh, uh, internal domestic front in the most serious, credible uh, uh, way of partnership between society and state and you don't have to worry about uh, uh, Iran uh, on that level. At the end of the day, Iran, I don't think Iran is going to invade Saudi Arabia or is going to engage in serious regime change in Saudi Arabia. And also here where I call for the uh, the solution to this is that the rebalance of the regional order. Uh, and as I explained well, is that, again, since two thousand. Uh, three uh, and the shift of Iraq's position to the to Iran's uh, side uh, this has led to uh, rebuilding uh, uh, a regional order on that level and I think if this is a major area of concern for Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia has options you know they have uh, they can build a strong relationship with uh, with Turkey and with Egypt as well right. This could counter the Iranian influence and engage in a more rebalanced er regional order. But you can't also, for Saudi Arabia, fight Iran and Saudi Arabia at the same time. I think this is wrong, right? And this is like the results of Saudi Arabia's foreign policy, that the way they're running. uh, You have also, you know, Pakistan is on the other side. That's Pakistan's primary interest is in the stability of the region, because the last thing that Pakistan would like to see is an advancement of sectarian conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia, because Pakistan's army, you know, is is a split also Sunni Shia that has uh, and an a, and a, and a, a sectarian conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia would reflect itself in the most serious you know bad way in pakistan uh, that pakistan wants to avoid and bringing pakistan to the uh, you know t- you know to this uh, composition uh, or to the regional order i think would rebalance in a way so saudi arabia has many options to rebalance uh, the regional order uh, whether it's the, through the relationship with uh, uh, with pakistan or building more of an alliance with uh, with turkey does not have to fear Iran uh, and whether Iran is going to expand and take over uh, Saudi Arabia. Now, the starting point for rebuilding the regional order and address that exactly the point that you mentioned, James, is the way I presented in the book will have to be Iraq. It all started in 2003, the rebalance of the regional order in Iraq, the change of position in Iraq, and has to go back to Iraq. And by that, I'm referring to, I'm not supposing or I'm not arguing that Iraq will have to shift position again to Saudi Arabia. No, it's totally the opposite. It's in Iraq's interest is to be free, independent from from interventions, whether it's from Iran or Saudi Arabia or any party in the world. So uh, advancing Iraq's independence is in the interest of Iraqis first, And the stability of the region, because Iraq's free from Iranian influence will address the regional, the imbalance of the regional order that was created in 2003. And I think there are many Iraqis who are aware of this. Barham Saleh many times has, you know, sent this message and emphasized this message: advancing Iraq that's a totally independent Iraq from the influence of not only its neighbors, from any party in the world. And this is the right of the Iraqis. Also, during the, uh, that, right after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, there were many Iraqi voices right, that they started talking about don't turn Iraq to be the, battle of gro- the battleground of this new conflict. Again, is advancing the message of independent Iraq. We are seeing also, we have seen in the past couple of years, uh, protests against Iran in Iraq. And One examples of Shi'as themselves uh, protests in Karbala and Najaf, also attacking the, the Iran's consulate in in Karbala, and uh, also raising uh, uh, you know their concern about the uh, Iranian intervention in Iraq. So again, independent Iraq will address also the regional uh, imbalance of power. Would could provide sec- also some assurances to Saudi Arabia and uh, the trust in the regional order, if we see that, uh, is happening as well. But again, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia has many choices uh, and they can address it instead of uh, advancing conflict with Iran uh, in order to address this component and not to be uh, afraid of Iran and the way uh, Iran's building its uh, influence in the region.
0: Ibrahim, we could go on for another hour. I think I've at best posed half of the questions I jotted down in preparation uh, of this uh, conversation. But unfortunately, we're running really up against the clock. Uh, Before I let you go, uh, I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit about where you go from here, what your next project is.
1: Thank you, James. It has been really a very interesting conversation with you. And as you said, it's really, we can't stop just talking about these issues. Uh, So this, uh, uh, the the interesting thing here, James, to answer your question, is that it's one research project that's leading me to another research project. As I started saying that my previous research was on, on unfinished revolutions in the region has led me to this research. Uh, and now this research is leading me to another uh, uh, major research question that I am researching, I started already, is about, uh, as a conflict resolution specialist, is about why mediation, international mediation, is not working in the uh, conflicts in the Arab world. Uh, we have seen uh, international mediation taking place in many conflicts in the region that, for for the kids. in uh, Western Sahara, we are seeing we've seen uh, UN mediation since 1989. Still, there is no progress. Still the conflict is going on. American mediation in Palestine, Israel, since Oslo Agreement in 1993, uh, and then uh, starting a lead pro- uh, peace process in 1993 that turned to be a process without peace and a, an endless mediation of us uh, uh, role in the, in this conflict we've seen the un changing uh, five or six uh, mediators in uh, in Syria since 2011 uh, we've seen also the un changing uh, mediators in Yemen uh, from Jamal bin Omar to Waldi Sheikh to Martin Griffin uh with no with no peace being achieved with no conflicts being resolved the same thing applies to libya uh Ghassan salami and uh, you know others tariq mitri and uh, and others also UN envoys with no peace achieved there so what is it about uh Arab conflicts that where mediation doesn't work is it the problem of the conflicts the mediator the issues of this conflict, what is it about? So I'm trying to ask this research questions. While you know, while other international conflicts mediation works, uh, and then to a certain extent, we're probably seeing the lowest uh, success level of uh, international mediation in Arab conflicts. And I'm trying to shed light uh, on this larger uh, regional uh, perspective on why mediation is not working and what, where the problem is and how can international mediation uh, be improving uh, in Arab conflicts and be uh, more successful.
0: Ibrahim Freyhat, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation and equally fascinating is your current research project, which I can't wait to read. Thank you for being on the show and all the best. Thank
1: you, James, for this really interesting and uh, scholarly challenging conversation. I love your questions and uh, uh, the way you challenge my arguments. Uh, I could go on for a long time, but I'm sure we will be uh, talking again uh, soon. Uh, many opportunities of uh, you know experts like you in the region. We will always end up finding ourselves talking about the conflicts in the region. Thank you, uh, James, for this really interesting.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.